Yes, you're worthy of all praise, Lord Jesus, because you are all those things that we've sung to you this morning. Healer, Savior, faithful King, righteous one, faithful one. Thank you, Lord, for all of the things that you are to those that believe. And we bless your name this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you're here for the first time, we, uh, we just pray that the Spirit of God will meet you here this morning and that your hearts will be touched by what He wants to do in us and through us. Well, this morning we're going to read uh, through uh, some scripture this morning together in sort of a responsive reading. The uh, Apostle Paul told Timothy to give attendance to the public reading of scripture. So we're going to read Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 19 this morning together. And the words will be up on the screen. If you have a New King James Version, you can read right out of your Bible text. It's in front of you. But if you're using another translation, then you'll have to refer to the screen. And the verse will pop up there and you can follow along. But I'll read the first and the odd-numbered verses. And you follow along by reading the second and all of the even-numbered verses. And Pastor Bill will be the captain of your ship this morning. Okay? (laughs) Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Psalm 19. Would you turn with me to Revelation, the 15th chapter this morning? As we continue through our study of this amazing book of Revelation, going through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter, as is our custom here at Calvary Chapel. And this morning we're in chapter 15 of Revelation. And I think one of the things we're going to see in this morning's study is the absolute uniqueness of Christianity in a very controversial area of study. The uniqueness of Christianity in the area of the judgment or the wrath of God. 
Christianity stands alone among all world's religions in that every religion has some form or another of the wrath of their gods. But Christianity stands alone because only in Christianity is there an eternal solution to the problem of God's anger against sin. Only in Christianity is there redemption. Only in Christianity is there a pulling out of the things that cause transgression against God. And we'll see that, I hope, in our study as we look into this very incredible chapter 15. Let's read the text together, the whole chapter. It's only eight verses long, and then we'll get into some comments. John is writing, of course, John the Apostle, and he says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure white linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Looking at chapter 15 in context, of course, we have to look at the whole of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, John saw in a very personal and powerful encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, he saw the glorified Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, there were Christ's messages to the seven churches, which are messages not only to churches that existed in the first century when John wrote, but these were messages to churches that have developed all throughout the course of church history since the apostolic church to the present day. The messages to the seven churches, chapter 2 and 3. After the messages to the churches, after the time that the church age is completed, we find in chapters 4 and 5 the church in heaven. They're in heaven with the Lamb who was slain. They're in heaven with the Lamb who has the seven souls, sealed scroll in his hand. They're in heaven with the Lamb who is worthy to open that scroll and to loose its seals. And they're worshiping along with the 24 elders and along with the four living creatures and with all of the angelic hosts and everyone that's in heaven. There is nothing but worship and praise to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Chapters 4 and 5, the church is in heaven, participating in all of that. Chapters 6 through 19, the seven-sealed scroll begins to be opened, and we have in chapters 6 through 19, the seven years of judgment. 
also known as the tribulation period, the last half of which is called the great tribulation. And chapter 19, the closing chapter of this seven-year period of future history, is uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. He comes back in chapter 19, the second coming of Christ to the earth. Chapter 20, we have the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, after the seven years are completed. And then at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, we have the final judgment where all that can be judged and needs to be judged is judged. Chapters 21 and 22, a new heaven and a new earth. Everything becomes brand new. The new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, from God to the earth. The eternal state is now what exists, and we live happily ever after, literally, in heaven, in the eternal state, which has come to earth here in the new Jerusalem. That's the outline of the book. This is the outline of the book, according to chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus told John, write the things which you have seen, chapter 1, the vision of Christ, write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the things pertaining to the churches, and write the things which shall be after these things, the church in heaven and the tribulation period, and the millennium, and the final judgment, and the eternal state. So, as a result of having the outline of the book, and as a result of just following the chronology of Revelation, just taking as, as it goes and just believing it and applying it as it's stated, we understand that it's possible to understand the book of Revelation. It's not the book of hiding. It's the book of Revelation. It's not the book of keeping back God's truth from us, but giving out of God's truth to us It's the revelation or literally the unveiling of Jesus Christ in these events. So the book of Revelation is not impossible to understand. It's possible to understand if we keep to the outline, the divine outline that was given to us in chapter 1, verse 19. It's possible to understand the flow of events. Now when we come to chapter 15, we come to a time frame which is somewhere in the middle of the tribulation period. Chapter 13, we have the unveiling of the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist. Chapter 14, the various messages of different angels. And now we have a continuation of that. This is taking place in the middle of the tribulation period. So the sign of the seven angels with the seven final plagues. John said he saw another sign in heaven. The two previous signs were the sign of the woman and the sign of the great red dragon in chapter 12. And these had the seven last plagues. Now the fact that they're called plagues is interesting because that's what they were called back in the Old Testament in reference to Egypt and Israel, if you remember. Remember when the children of Israel were in Egypt, they had been there for 400 years, and God said, it's time for you to come out of Egypt. I'm going to deliver you. He raised up Moses to be the deliverer, to lead them out of Egypt and into the promised land. That was the idea. And as they came out, before they were able to come out, God had to inflict the Egyptians with plagues. Remember, there were ten plagues, the very last of which was the basis for that great Jewish feast of Passover where the angel of death passed over 
the houses of those who had the mark of blood on the doorposts and the two side posts of the house. He passed over those houses that had been covered with blood, a very fitting picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and of what he does for us as believers. So there we have it, and those judgments were called plagues upon Egypt. Now, why was it necessary for God to judge Egypt? It was because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Had Pharaoh just let them go, had he just let Israel go and obeyed the commandment of God, there would have been no judgment that would have followed. But because he continued to harden his heart, eventually the Lord hardened his heart. But Pharaoh went first. He hardened his heart, and then the Lord confirmed him in his obstinance, and thus the ten plagues. Well, that's what they're called here. These seven angels have the seven last plagues. And in these plagues, there is the wrath of God. And in these plagues, the wrath of God is complete. Now, the wrath of God, the anger of God against sin. That bothers a lot of people. And I understand in this present age why it bothers a lot of people. The idea that there is a God who is angry and has wrath against sin. And that he would express his wrath against sin. I understand the sensitivities to the particular subject at hand. But the reason for that is because our culture has moved away from the idea that there's such a thing as truth. And because we've moved away from the idea that there's such a thing as truth, we've also moved away as a culture from the idea that there are consequences to that which is a lie. And that there are penalties for those who choose by an act of their own will to obey these lies. And the wrath of God, it's completely different from the anger of the heathen gods. The anger of the heathen gods was capricious. It was unpredictable. You never knew when you made one of these heathen gods angry or what they wanted and satisfaction for their anger. That's not the way God is. He's very, very clear. His judgments are true and righteous altogether. By his commandments, his servants are warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. He's very clear about what he expects. He's very clear about how to be on the right side with him, so to speak. Not like the heathen gods who are very unclear, and so they're constantly having to make sacrifices and give up this, give up that, do this, do that, to try to pacify these heathen gods. God's wrath is also different from the holy, unholy anger of man. The thing that makes God's wrath and anger stand out as being absolutely a beautiful thing is the fact that it is the expression of his own nature. God is just, and God is righteous in all his ways. And so when he acts in justice, and when he acts in righteousness, he's simply acting consistently with who he is and with his own nature. Now, here's a concept. When God revealed the meaning of his name to Moses in Exodus 34, Moses wanted to know God. He wanted to have God show him his glory. And the Lord says, no, you can't see my face. No one could survive that experience. But I will cause my name to be revealed to you. So Moses was revealed, uh, the Lord revealed to him, the meaning of the name of God, or Yahweh. So here's what the Lord said as he passed by and passed by Moses. He said, the Lord, the Lord, 
merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and in mercies, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children to the third and the fourth generation. Do you see how much you had to get through to get to the justice part of the meaning of God's name? He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and mercies. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. And then after wading through all of that, but he does not clear the guilty. He does visit the iniquity upon those that sin against him. What that tells me is God reveals the meaning of his own name to Moses. What it tells me is that God's favorite part of himself, and I hate to even use that phrase because it sounds reverential, irreverential, but the favorite part of God concerning himself is his love and mercy. He much prefers to act in love. He much prefers to act in mercy. He much prefers to act in forgiveness. And he gives us every opportunity he possibly can to receive his love and his grace and his mercy. In fact, it's become my position that if someone eventually ends up under the final judgment of God, it's because somehow they've been able to resist his grace their whole lifetime. And I think that takes a lot of work. In fact, that's the Bible picture. It does take a lot of work. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're holding it down. It's like, you know, there's a pressure building up under the city and and the steam and and whatever. It's about to blow the city apart and all the manhole covers are going to be blowing off into the the skyline and breaking windows and, 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 and all. And so the people go and they stand on the manhole cover and they hold it down. They use all their energies to keep that down, keep it down, keep it down, keep it down. That's the truth of God that's trying to get out. But we as human beings want to hold it down. We want to suppress it. We want to keep the truth of God under a lid. We don't want it to be exposed. Why? There's only one reason. That's because we want to do what we want to do. We want to live the way we want to live. We want to be the captain of our own ship. We want to be the savior of our own life and our own souls. We're independent. We're self-sufficient. We're proud. We're arrogant. We're egotistical. So much so that we're not even willing to submit to the God that made us, who has by the way, the instruction manual on how we ought to live this life. And it makes sense. And there's freedom here. There's joy here. There's peace here. There's love here. There's rest here. There's eternal life here. But nowhere else. And God's offering that to us. We have to work hard to suppress that. So the wrath of God. It's manifest, all right, but it's manifest against man's willful, proud, deliberate, and inexcusable sin. Now, when God does judge, it's very important that we understand that it's a right judgment. Remember back in Genesis, Abraham had a nephew. His name was Lot. Lot preferred to live down in the well-watered plains of the Jordan River. 
And so he went down where all the greenery was and where all the water was flowing and where all the opportunities were. And as he lived down in the plains, he found himself moving closer and closer to the cities. And specifically, closer and closer to two very notorious and extremely wicked cities, completely depraved, Sodom and Gomorrah. You've heard their names. And eventually, he not only moved towards Sodom and Gomorrah, he lived in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and took up residence there. And that's where he was. Now, the cry of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah against the Lord had become very, very obvious to the Lord. And so in Genesis 18, the Lord, the angel of the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done according to the outcry of it that has come to me. And if not, I'll know. Now, the Lord apparently said these words, the angel of the Lord, close enough to Abraham to where Abraham was able to, to hear these words. So the angels went towards Sodom, but the angel of the Lord still stood there in front of Abraham, and Abraham drew near to the angel of the Lord. He had some questions to ask him. Because he knew what was on the Lord's mind. He knew that the Lord was righteous and he knew that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were very wicked. And he knew that if they really did check out what was going on down there, that judgment would be likely to fall. But his nephew lived in the city. And his nephew's wife and their children lived in the city. And his children's spouses lived in the city. And he had a heart for them as well as he had for Sodom and Gomorrah themselves. So Abraham had these questions asked, and he drew near the Lord, and he said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? What if there were 50 righteous within the city? Would you destroy the city for the sake of the 50 righteous that were in the city? And he said, Far be it that you should do such a thing as this. Now Abraham's getting very bold here. He's speaking to the angel of the Lord, and he says, Far be it that you should do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And then he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What a great question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What's the answer? Absolutely he will. Always he will do right. And so the Lord said to Abraham, If I find 50 righteous within the city, I will not destroy the city for the sake of the 50 righteous. Well, Abraham took advantage of that opportunity, and you know the story. Well, what about 45? Will you destroy the city if there are 45 in the city? Nope, not for 40. How about 40? No. 30? No. I won't destroy the city if I can find 30 righteous in the city. 20? No, not 20. I'm going to take it upon myself one more time to speak like this to the Lord. What if there are 10 righteous within the city? Will you destroy the city for the sake of the 10 righteous? Now you do the math. It only needs a few more plus his own relatives and the city spared. And the Lord says, If I find 10 righteous within the city, I will not destroy the city for the sake of the 10. So the angels went down. 
They couldn't find ten, so the cities were destroyed. The judge of all the earth does right. Because it proceeds from his own nature. His wrath proceeds from who he is. And he knows everything. He has every detail. He knows exactly what is in our lives. He knows exactly what is in our hearts. He knows exactly what's in our thoughts. He knows exactly every action that we have done. I've used this illustration many times, but even in a wonderful environment like this where there are many believers in Christ and you've been reading your Bibles this week and praying up and trying to walk with the Lord even though we all stumble in many ways, amen? (laughs) But we're making an attempt at it. You know, getting closer to the Lord every day, hopefully, and every year, hopefully. I know that's true for so many. But even with that environment, what would happen if we installed video cameras in here that could record thoughts? Okay, think about that. We install video cameras in here that can record thoughts and motives. So everything's been recorded. You came in and walked around and sat down, looked around, and so did I, and all these things. And next week, we're going to play the video. I would come to see what your recording said, but I wouldn't want you to see my recording. (laughs) Probably be a pretty empty church that morning. But the Lord has that knowledge, you see. He knows every thought. He knows every motive. He knows every action. And still, His preferred act is to forgive and be merciful and be gracious. That's who he is. Now in these plagues, John says in verse 1, the wrath of God is complete. Notice that word, that word complete. It means finished. It comes from the, the word which means to come to a completed end. It's Related to that word that Jesus used on the cross. Remember? Three words in English, but one word in Greek. Tetelestai. It is finished. It's kind of connected to that word. The wrath of God is complete in these seven last plagues. What does that mean? Well, another Old Testament example from the book of Genesis. Again, the Lord is speaking to Abram in Genesis 15. And he tells Abram there that his descendants, those that came forth from his line and his family tree, that his descendants would be strangers in a land that did not belong to them. And he would serve those strangers in a different land. And those strangers would afflict Abraham's descendants for 400 years. And then God would judge the nation that they were serving that they had served for 400 years. And then, you know, by that time, Abraham would be with the Lord, with his fathers in peace. But then the Lord said to Abraham, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here to the land of Canaan. They shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, complicated passage, but this is what it's saying. The Lord is speaking to Abram, the father of the Jewish people the father of what would eventually become the nation of Israel. That's who he is. And the Lord is telling Abram 
that his descendants would live in another country for 400 years and would serve the powers that be in, those, in that country for 400 years. At the end of 400 years, God would judge that nation. Does that ring a bell? You know what that's talking about. That's talking about Egypt. The Lord would send his people, the descendants of Abram, to Egypt, and they would live in Egypt for 400 years. And they would serve the Egyptians for 400 years. And it would be very difficult, especially at the end of those 400 years. And God would judge that people. And he did. In the book of Exodus, it's recorded that God judged the people of Israel. But during that time, now just think of it, here is where the land of Canaan is. Here is where the land of Egypt is. The descendants of Abraham aren't living in Canaan for 400 years. They're living over here in Egypt for 400 years. So what's going on back in Canaan? The Amorites are living there. The Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, and all the other ites that are there. They're all living in the land of Canaan. What's going on in them for 400 years? Well, according to Genesis chapter 15, the Lord is giving them opportunity to repent. He's giving them 400 years to repent. What happens in the Canaanites for the 400 years that Israel is in Egypt? The Canaanites do not repent. In fact, they become worse and worse and worse. They become so bad, they become so evil, that the merciful solution to dealing with the Amorites is to exterminate them. Because they are like a cancer in the fabric of the human race. They're like a rabid dog that's biting everyone that it sees. And you've got to kill the dog. And you've got to eradicate the cancer. You absolutely have to. Otherwise, that person has no chance to live, and those people that are getting bit by the dog have no chance to survive. And so the Lord said, I will judge those people, the Amorites, for their iniquity. It's like, if you've read To Kill a Mockingbird, one of my favorite books when I read, you know, growing up. And you have that scene in the movie and in the book where Jem's father, Atticus Finch, hears about this rabid dog that's coming up the street and posing great danger to everyone in that neighborhood. And the sheriff doesn't think that he'd be able to hit the dog if he shot at it. And nobody knows that Atticus Finch is a crack shot with a rifle, not even his son Jem. And finally, because no one else will do it, reluctantly, Atticus comes out of his house with his rifle and he takes the rifle and he shoots with one shot this dog and the dog dies, saving the neighborhood. Now there's two things in that picture I like that demonstrate the point that I'm trying to make here this morning. Number one, Atticus was very hesitant to use the power that he had. But he knew he had to to save the neighborhood. Just like our God. He doesn't want to, he doesn't prefer to have to judge the human race. And he didn't want to judge the Amorites. He gave them 400 years to repent. Within their culture, there were messages that could lead them to repentance if they'd pay attention. But they didn't want to. In fact, they got worse. And it got so bad that by the time those 400 years were over with, 
It was a culture that was completely corrupted. If I could read to you a listing of some of the things that they did in that culture and that were pervasive within that culture, you'd understand why the Lord took them out. And so when Israel left Egypt to go back to the land of Canaan after 400 years, what was their mission? To exterminate the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and all of these people groups. Why? Because for the benefit of all of mankind, it was a merciful thing overall. And because these people were beyond help. They were like the rabid dog that was going to die anyway. Had to shoot it. And unfortunately, cultures can become like that, apparently. And that's what's going to be happening during this last part of the tribulation period. The culture has become so corrupt that it would be very similar to the culture of the Amorites. And so if God doesn't judge during these last three and a half years, it would be very difficult to find rationale to love him. Because how can you love a God that doesn't punish sin? That isn't just? That isn't worthy of respect? It's his own nature that is his expression of wrath. Okay, let's go on. The vision of those having victory over the beast. He saw a sea of glass. We know what that is. It's the sea of glass before God's throne, Revelation 4, 6. He also saw those that had the victory over the beast, over the image and over the mark and over the number of his name. And so these are the martyred dead that refused to take the mark of the beast and they are described in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. And they said no to the religion of the Antichrist. They said no to the economy of the Antichrist. They said no to the image of the beast. And they said no to the mark of his name. They refused to take the mark. They refused to worship the image of the beast. They stood their ground. What happened to them? They were killed. They were martyred. But notice what it tells us in our text. They have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. They had victory over him even though they lost their lives. How can this be? Martyrdom in the great tribulation period is actually a victory. Why is that? It's victory because death had long ago lost its sting. And the grave long ago had lost its victory. 1 Corinthians 15.55 Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? There is no victory in sin or in the grave any longer. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are freed. So when they said no to the mark of the beast and no to worshiping the image and no to the number of his name and they were killed, the very best thing that could happen to them happened to them as their lives were being taken. They immediately went into the presence of God. They had victory. 
They also had victory over any kind of fear that may have been in their hearts or in their lives. Similar to what Jesus said to the church of Smyrna in chapter 2 of Revelation, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death, he told them. So it is here. Beautiful and wonderful and powerful victory. I just think of the many believers all over the world today that are suffering for their faith and some of which will die this year for their faith in Jesus Christ. They will have had victory and not defeat in their own death. Many times, as someone once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed for revival. And so it goes. Well, they're singing a song, verses 3 and 4. It's the song of Moses. Do you remember Moses sang that song along with his sister Miriam after they were delivered out of Egypt? It was a song of victory. It was a song of great power. It was a song of deliverance. That's what they're singing, this kind of song. It's exalting the Lord. And it says these things, Great and marvelous your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. And it's going to be wild that we're going to be hearing them sing this song. We're already in heaven, the true church, the true believers. We're already in heaven. And one by one, as each martyr has his head taken off, he joins us there. And eventually there's a collection of them that is so great that it, in, in Revelation 7 it says that they can't even be numbered. And they're there having victory over these things. And they're singing this song and we're listening to it. Listening to this song being sung. wonder what the tune will be. Can't wait. Just and true are your ways. Everything about this song is to glorify the Lord. The call to fearing Him. Who should not? Who should not glorify your name? You're the only Holy One. Beautiful song. Beautiful worship. All the nations coming to worship before the Lord because His judgments have been manifested. Well, after this, verse 5, after these things, he looked and he saw something new. The temple of the tabernacle in heaven was opened. And when this kind of thing happens, when the temple is opened in heaven, remember, there is a temple in heaven. How do you know that? Well, when God told Moses to build the tabernacle back in Exodus, he told them to make it exactly according to the specifications that have been given to them. Because, as we learn in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, everything that they built in the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a pattern or a picture of the heaven reality, the tabernacle and the temple that exists in heaven. So there is a tabernacle, there is a temple in heaven. And John sees the one in heaven, this temple, being opened up. And to identify this temple, it's identified as the temple of the tabernacle in heaven that was opened. And when this happens, when this kind of thing happens with the temple, it's always connected to God's judgment. We saw it happen when Jesus was crucified, remember? He said, it is finished, and after he had said these words, he 
said in loud voice to his father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And after he said this, he yielded his spirit up to the father and he died. And when that happened, there was a great earthquake. And after that, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. No more barrier any longer between man and God. It's been torn from the top to the bottom. Access now is available directly into the presence of God with no hindrance through the veil that has been torn down by God himself. And in Hebrews we learn that that veil is nothing more, nothing less than Jesus' body that died on the cross. His death tore the veil in two, giving us access to God. That was a judgment. The judgment upon Jesus for the sins of the world allowed access to God. And we see the same thing in Revelation eleven nineteen that the temple of God was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and a great hail. So out of this temple, seven angels come. They have the seven plagues. Their clothing, pure bright linen, representing righteousness. Chests girded with golden bands. The four living creatures, one of them comes, gives to the seven angels these seven bowls, these golden bowls full of God's wrath. And when this happens, verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. This was a, an awesome experience. When this was happening on earth, this judgment was being poured out, and it's still future to us today, of course. But when this takes place in heaven, there's the cloud, and there's the smoke, and there's no direct access into the inner part of the temple in heaven during this time because this is a time when even God himself wants to shield aspects of himself from us because wrath is not his favorite thing. It's an ominous scene. It's an awesome scene to consider it. Now these bowls are going to be the culmination. Again, looking at chronologies in the book of Revelation, you've got seven seals. Think of a scroll, each of, and the scroll is sealed by seven wax seals. So the first seal opens up the scroll initially, and it's opened up enough to read the writing that's on that part of the scroll. And then the next seal is peeled back, and you can read that writing until eventually the whole scroll is able to be read. The seventh of those seven seals opens up the seven trumpet judgments. That's the chronology. The seventh trumpet, when it sounds and is blown, opens up the way for these seven bowl judgments. So there's another kind of chronology in the book. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, showing how the narrative progresses during this time frame. Let's just talk about God for a minute. 
in his ways. What is it like for him to judge? What are principles of God's judgment? First of all, God is holy. And all of this is in your notes. You can look at these references later, study them out. God is holy. Isaiah 57, 15. He's the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. His name is holy. He dwells in the high and holy place. That means he's other than anything else. He's holy. He's completely set apart and unique. There is no one like him. But we also know that God is pure, Habakkuk 1.13, where the prophet said to the Lord, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. God is pure. He didn't create sin, but he created the capacity to choose that might result in sin, and when it shows up, his pure eyes can't look on it. The world will tremble at his anger, Jeremiah 10.10. Those that are without Christ have God's wrath resting upon them, according to John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. How does that wrath get removed? By believing in Jesus Christ. If someone lives their whole life and imagine and and somehow is able to avoid repentance and faith in Christ and receiving this great gift called salvation, then the wrath of God that abides on them now will continue on them for eternity. The idea that God sends anyone to hell is absolutely incorrect. He doesn't. I've said this before, but if anyone finds himself... In heaven, he has only God to thank. And if anyone finds himself in hell, he has only himself to blame. If you're not a Christian here this morning, don't go to hell. God doesn't want that for you. He wants you to receive eternal life and the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's already been offered and he already paid the penalty. God's wrath is against man's suppression of the truth of God. Romans 1.18 God's wrath is cumulative. It builds up, according to Romans 2.5. Someone who continues to be hard in their hearts and unrepentant, they treasure up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God's wrath is against the violation of his law, Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. But God's wrath is his alien or his strange work, Isaiah 28.21. The King James says that he might bring to pass his act, his strange act, which is referring to his judgment in the context. The NIV puts it this way, to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. That's his judgment. He's talking about his judgment. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.13 God has not appointed us unto wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we might live together with him. And no one will question the justice of God after it falls. No one will question his judgments once they are revealed. Just read Romans 2, 1-16. And then finally, and I think this is 
my favorite part, and the reason it is is because I think it's God's favorite part. In the gospel, justice and mercy combine to allow man to be forgiven. That's the way it works. Justice and mercy combine to allow man to be forgiven. There's a story of this old schoolhouse in the back hills of Kentucky. And this schoolhouse was made up of, you know, kids that of varying ages that went to school in this one-room schoolhouse. And it was such a difficult place to teach because these, these kids were completely out of control. And teacher after teacher would go and try to teach these kids, try to bring them up out of their life in the hills and give them a better future. But every single teacher got run out of Dodge, and, you know, they just couldn't keep a teacher. Well, there was this one Christian teacher that they had asked to consider take the job, and he prayed about it, and he felt like he should do it. And so he, he went, and he took the job. People thought he was crazy because it, they, all teachers had been run out of town. But he went and he took the job. And on the first day of school, he said, you know, my heart in coming here is to help you get an education so that through this education, you might be liberated and actually develop a career or a path that can get you out of these hills and into a more productive kind of a life. But in order for that to happen, for me to be successful at my task, there are going to have to be rules and there's going to have to be order in this classroom because there can't be chaos. You'll never learn anything. They, they said they nodded their heads yes. I mean, they were always well-behaved on the first day of the new teacher. I said, so we're going to make some rules. But I'm not going to make the rules myself. I want you to make the rules. And so he asked them what the rules ought to be. Well, they knew what they had been doing wrong, so they could, it was easy for them to name the rules. Nobody should steal from another student. This was always the undoing of the class. You should be on time for school. You should be on time after recess. No fighting. And they listed a bunch of rules. He wrote them all down on the blackboard. He said, okay, those are the rules. Now... We can't just leave it there because if we have rules and there are no consequences to breaking these rules, then all these rules up on the board are, is advice. That's, a, that's all it is, just advice. These are, these are the classroom suggestions, but they're not the classroom commandments. So there has to be consequences. So again, you made the rules. I want you to make the consequences. What happens to someone who breaks one of these rules? So they thought about it, and he said, well, he should get ten hard switches from the teacher. You know, take a branch and whop on the rear. That ought to do it. Okay, you've picked the punishment. That's it. Everything was going great in that school. They were learning. They were making progress. Until the biggest kid in the class, his lunch, turned up missing one day. Somebody had taken his lunch. teacher got all of them together in the class. Okay, we've had our first violation. Steve's lunch here has been taken. Who did it? Dead silence. But eventually this little scrawny hand raised itself up in the back of the classroom. I did it, teacher. 
And the teacher's heart immediately sank. Because this was little Johnny. His father had been out of work for months. They were almost starving at home. This kid probably hadn't had a good, sound meal for a long time. And he's the one that stole the lunch, probably because he was hungry. And there was nothing inside of the heart of that teacher that wanted to punish that little boy. But he had to. If he didn't do it, the whole system breaks down. There had to be the consequences for the broken law. So heartbroken, the teacher called him up front and got the switch out. He was ready to administer the discipline. Right before he did, Steve, whose lunch was stolen, said, Teacher, wait a minute, wait a minute. He was the biggest kid in the class too, by the way. He said, you said that these are the rules, and we all said that this is the consequence for breaking the rules, but nobody said anything about who had to take the consequences. It was my lunch that was stolen. I don't want little Johnny to have to pay this penalty. I'm going to take his licking for him. So he got up to the front of that class, and he got down, and that teacher gave him the 10 hard ones. And little Johnny could be free. And in that story, he illustrated and demonstrated to the class, this is the gospel class. This is why God sent me here. He sent me to teach you. Not just to teach you so you can get out of these hills of Kentucky. He sent me to teach you so you could understand this message about the Lord Jesus. And we've just illustrated it. God the Father didn't want to give you a weapon. He has no delight in punishing the wicked. And so what he did is he sent his son. And his son took our licking. Took and bore in his own body our sins on the tree. And he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him that day. That's the extent to which God has gone. To withhold his wrath, which is his strange and alien work, from human beings. What a Savior. What a God. What a Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this, your word. And thank you for all that you do. Every single act of yours proceeds from your own nature. And as a merciful act, or as a patient act, or as a just act, or as a righteous act. We love you, Father. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. And we honor you and respect you deeply. Because this is the way you are. This is who you are. These are your ways. And who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? In the light of this, we would ask the question of, of David, the psalmist. What shall we render unto the Lord? What shall we give to the Lord for all his benefits that he's given to us? We'll lift up the cup of salvation and we'll call upon the name of the Lord. We'll give thanks to the Lord now in the presence of his people. That's what we do, Lord, before you.
as Rodney's just sort of playing softly in the background, I want to have a word to share with any of you this morning that today's the day where you are willing and ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ yourself as your own Savior and as your own Lord. Time for you to just open your heart and receive him. He died for you. He rose from the dead. He's alive today. His resurrection is a fact of history. It was seen by many hundreds of believers. Eyewitness testimony. Their testimony would all hold up very easily in a court of law. It's a fact. He's alive. The one who died for you is alive today. And he loves you. He wants you to enter into his family. He wants to forgive you. He wants to give you a new start. It doesn't matter really how much sin has occurred in your life. He's willing to forgive it and he's willing to change you even if there are huge areas and issues in your life that are like mountains too high to climb for you. He can change you. He's got the power. The gospel can do that. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. God does that. He makes them a new creation, brand new person. And he can do that for you this morning. But you have to be willing. And if you're willing to receive him on his terms and just let him come in and be your savior to forgive you and to be your master and to lead you, he'll take you the rest of the way. He'll give you all the power you need. Because he died for it and he loves you. Who this morning is ready to make that commitment? Would you just stand right where you're seated and I want to have a word of prayer with you? Just stand right where you're right where you are. You're wanting to receive the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. This could be the day of your salvation. This could be the day during which your whole life changes. Why put it off? Open up your heart to the one who loves you. No one will love you like God. No one will love you like Jesus. No one can. Anyone this morning? The Lord is faithful. Thank you, Lord, for this time. And we pray that you would use your word, even as this goes out uh, on the internet, Lord, and even as CDs are distributed later, we pray that you'd use this part of the message to really speak to hearts, to bring people into the kingdom. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. shall we stand together?